All right. Thank you. How are you? Good to be back with you. It's the first time I've uh, been to Communitas since uh, you've moved downstairs. It's a nice place. How long have you been meeting down here? Wow. Okay. I don't remember who uh, invited me uh, to come to Communitas. I hope it was one of the leaders. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, some people will just say, yeah, just come back and... Uh, in any case, uh, whoever it was, all right, thank you. Um, you said that you had been learning about consecration. And uh, as we spoke about what I might address, um, I felt that I should talk about counterfeit consecration. When, when you think of the word consecration, what comes to your mind? Dictionary? That's fair. I like dictionary.com. It's one of my favorite, favorite websites. Uh, what, what, what do you think of? What does it mean? Set apart. Okay. Holy. Any other? Devoted. What's that? Secret place. Okay. All right. Counterfeit. What comes to mind when you think of something that's counterfeit? Money. Okay. So, deceiving? Fraudulent? Fake? Okay. One of the things that's interesting about counterfeit money is that the aim of a counterfeit is to look as much like the real as it can. I mean, you'd, you've probably never seen a triangularly shaped uh, $3 bill that's purple in color. I believe that the greatest danger to your devotion to Christ is not outright sin, but it's a form of godliness that fails to engage your heart, also known as legalism, or living under the influence of religious spirits. I'm going to do my best to define uh, legalism. Here are three attempts. Legalism is counterfeit consecration. It's Phariseeism. It is a pride-driven approach to life that substitutes trust in one's performance for trust in Christ's finished work. It's a pride-driven approach to life that substitutes trust in one's performance for trust in Christ's finished work. Paul has some things to say about it in Galatians. Without asking you to turn there, I'm just going to recite some uh, references. I'll share them with you. And by the way, um, if you just don't want to take notes, that's fine. I'll send my notes to, to Paul or whomever, and, uh, and you can have those notes. But Paul explains that legalism or counterfeit consecration is relying on human effort to finish what God has started. In chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, how can you be so stupid? Do you think that by yourself you can complete what God's Spirit started in you? 
Legalism is also defined by Paul as trying to win God's favor by performance. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Anyone who tries to please God by obeying the law is under a curse. So it's trying to please God by obeying the law. Galatians 4.10. You are trying to find favor with God by what you do or don't do on certain days or months or seasons or years. So, he defines it from the book of Galatians as relying on human effort to finish what God started and trying to win God's favor by performance. Is that dangerous? If you have your Bible, why don't you turn to Galatians 5 and read verse 4. I think a lot of Christians are afraid of counterfeit grace. We have, we have reason to be afraid of counterfeit grace. Counterfeit grace goes by any number of names. Greasy grace, sloppy agape. There are people, well-meaning people, who see grace as permission to sin. And they're mistaken about that. The book of Titus tells us that the true grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So there's a counterfeit grace, just like there's counterfeit consecration, counterfeit holiness. Sometimes I think we think counterfeit grace is perhaps a greater danger. And if we're going to err on one side, it would be better to be legalistic than to be guilty of counterfeit grace. But if you fall off a horse, it really doesn't matter which side you fall off of, does it? What's Galatians 5.4 say? Go ahead. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but by faith you eagerly await the spirit the righteousness for which you hope. Thank you. Is Paul speaking to believers in his letter to the churches of Galatia? Well, sure. Yeah. If you're part of a church, one of the churches of Galatia, you are, you are a believer. You embrace Jesus. You who seek, he's speaking to believers, you who seek to justify yourselves by works of the law have been alienated from Christ. Some versions say severed from Christ and fallen from grace. However you define that, it's not good. It's not something that's desirable. It's something to be avoided. And so let's be very understanding of the fact that as dangerous as greasy grace is, as dangerous as counterfeit grace is, counterfeit consecration, counterfeit holiness, legalism is equally threatening to your spiritual vitality. And I want to make one note that I think is really important. Paul's argument against legalism in the book of Galatians is not an argument for licentiousness. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he said, You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And in chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, in our resistance to counterfeit consecration, 
We don't want to settle for its polar opposite. We don't want to settle for licentiousness. And so you might find yourself, as a result of being aware of these twin dangers, feeling a little bit of tension. Please learn to embrace tension in your Christian life. One of the reasons people seem to land on one of these polar extremes is because they don't like tension. People just seem to say, well, I'm just, I'm about grace. Well, so is God. And some other people say, well, yeah, but I'm about holiness. Well, so is God. God is not one-dimensional. The, the same, the same Jesus who said, let those who are weary and heavy laden come to me and find rest was in the face of the self-righteous, unrepentant Pharisees delivering his woes. And when you read in Matthew 23, statements that begin with the word woe, that means you are in deep doo-doo. <laughs> You're in serious trouble. Let me share with you um, some symptoms that you are under the influence of a religious spirit or you might call this, you might be a legalist if. Some of you are familiar with Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if. You know, you might be a redneck if somebody asks you for your ID and you show them your belt buckle. Says Bill, Billy. My name's Billy. There, there it is. There you have it. It is what it is. Okay, you might be a legalist if. And again, I'm happy to send these notes to you. Wrestle with this stuff, pray over it, test it against the Word of God. You might be a legalist if you look for life and security in keeping rules rather than in your relationship with Jesus. Paul argues against this in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. You might be a legalist if creating a rule is your default response to fixing a problem. Here's an example. A guy and a gal who drive to work together start having sex. The legalist response is, never drive anywhere with someone of the opposite sex. There are people who actually create boundaries like that. And I am not here tonight to say boundaries are not wise. I would just only like to ask that if you're going to create a boundary for yourself, that you be led by the Holy Spirit and apply it only to yourself and consider that perhaps your boundary is seasonal. I fear that we believers who speak so much about purity have begun to place our trust in our boundaries instead of the Lord. My uh, favorite devotional, something I've been reading since before many of you were born, I was given it as a gift for standing up for a friend in his wedding back in 1977. And, uh, and the, the, the gift, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis um, has really been an amazing blessing for me. I was a seminarian at the time, and uh, on the second page, the very second page, I began to read, it says it's more important to feel contrition than to know its definition. And I was in an environment like any seminarian is where you're just overwhelmed with knowledge. And I thought, wow, that's a good reminder. It's a good reminder. But 
Here, a Kempis says, and he's writing in Old English, so I'm going to do my best to, to read, <laughs> read the Old English. No sanctity is there, therefore, if thou, O Lord, withdraw thy hand. No wisdom availeth or avails if you cease to guide. No courage help will help if you leave off to preserve. No chastity is secure if you do not protect it. No custody of our own availeth if thy, thy sacred watchfulness be not present. For left to ourselves we sink and perish, but being visited of you, we are raised up and live. Unstable truly are we, but through you are we strengthened. We wax lukewarm, but by you we are inflamed. Let me repeat again. No custody of our own will avail if your sacred watchfulness be not present. Create boundaries that the Spirit leads you to create for yourself. And seek counsel from others before you create them. And be careful that you don't put your trust in your boundary. Put your trust in the Lord. You might be a legalist if you are more concerned about looking good than being good. Joyce is more worried that her neighbors hurt her, lose her control, lose her temper with her toddler-aged daughter than she is that she lost her temper. You might be a legalist if you place a high value on small things and miss the bigger picture. Ted is held in the grip of unforgiveness, but he's maintained his daily devotional life for many years. He can't see the forest for the trees, as they say. He's completely oblivious to his bitterness, but he can tell you exactly how many times he's read through the Bible. You might be a legalist if you derive confidence and a sense of personal satisfaction from your observance of checklist items. When asked how he knew he was a healthy Christian, Tommy said, I read my Bible, I pray every day, I go to church consistently, and I tithe. I remember saying to Tommy, a Pharisee does all of those things. Is the performance of these things the basis of your confidence, or is it your position of right standing in Christ that is the basis of your confidence? Is this making sense? You might be a legalist if you make Bible reading and prayer ends in themselves. Lenny's devotional life has become more about how much he reads and how much he prays than how he's connecting or whether he's connecting with the Lord. One of the most sobering texts that I've ever read is in John 5, 38 and 39, where Jesus told his listeners, who were very devout in the practice of their Judaism, you diligently search the scriptures but you don't know me. You might be a legalist if you focus on the exterior life instead of the interior life. Jerry wants Larry, who is a new follower of the Lord, to work hard to give up his pornographic magazines, but shows no concern with helping Larry to deal with the lust that's in his heart. God is always after the heart. Man looks on the appearance, right? God looks on the heart. That's what God spoke to to Samuel before he anointed David to be king. God is always looking at the heart. One of the texts that, that has become a prayer for me for many years, actually, I was so stirred as I, as I looked at it and, and saw something of the character of God. It says in Second Chronicles 16.9, the first part of the verse, it says God's eyes are moving backward and forward over the whole earth, arranging to and fro, over the whole earth that he might strongly support the hearts 
of those who are completely his. God is looking for people whose heart belongs to him fully and belongs to him only. I bet you'd like a heart like that. Here's the deal. I don't believe any of us can say for sure with integrity that we have such a heart. Do you know why? Again, because man looks at the appearance. God looks at the heart. I can't see into the realm of my heart. You can't see into the realm of your heart. Do you know that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, his followers interacted with him in the most upfront and personal way they they could possibly have interacted with him? They experienced the Lord's Supper for the first time. They sang a hymn. And they all agreed they they would follow him to death if necessary. Eleven. The twelfth left Jesus to betray him. But eleven men remained and they all to a man, promised that they would follow Jesus to the very end. I personally believe they meant what they said. But one of the things we learn when we read about that episode in the life of Jesus and his apostles is this. Jesus knew what was inside of them better than they knew what was inside of them. Jesus knows what's inside of me better than I know what's inside of me. You and I can sing as we did when I was a young person in meetings like this. And God bless you for your intensity of worship and your intensity of prayer. God bless you for your hunger for the Lord. But I remember one of the songs from my generation that we used to like to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. And I think we meant it. Some did. And some didn't realize they were going to follow Jesus until life got inconvenient. Or they were going to follow Jesus until they didn't feel his presence any longer. Or until there was a temptation just too attractive. I'm here tonight to ask you to ask God to make you what you can't make you. You might be a legalist if you've developed a very judgmental spirit. Ned sees himself and a select few in his church as the remnant of true followers of the Lord. He and his pals are among those who don't smoke or chew or go with those who do. Is the truth of James 2.13 that mercy triumphs over judgment? deeply ingrained in your heart. You might, you might be a legalist if you react offensively when your legalism is challenged. I believe if you are a legalist, you are the last person to realize it. Are you unwilling to consider whether the accusation has any merit? You might be a legalist if you have no room in your doctrine for matters of opinion such as Paul talks about in Romans 14. There's a whole category of things that Paul referred to as disputable matters in Romans 14. The fancy theological word we attach to that is adiaphora. 
And it refers to those things that the Bible neither commands nor prohibits, which are not of eternal consequence, about which Christians can disagree. They are not essential to salvation. Some Christians talk like every minor detail of their doctrine is spot-on accurate and can't possibly be wrong. If you haven't learned that you know in part and you look through a glass darkly, you might ask the Holy Spirit to help you to internalize that truth. Paul also said, let the person who thinks he knows realize he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. So let's, let's understand that we can hold our differing views about baptism, full immersion, sprinkling, the Lord's Supper, symbol or sacrament, end times things, and any number of other things, and let's discuss them freely and respectfully. And understand that when the day is over, if we both maintain a relationship with Christ, that's what matters. Unity is not the same as uniformity. In the churches that I've served over the years, most people don't know where I stand on any number of disputable matters. I served a church for nine years before they knew that I have a sacramental belief of communion. I felt no need to tell them. I said, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to our communion table, whether you believe it's a sacrament or a symbol. Some people wonder, Kevin, how can you have a sacramental view of communion? Well, I believe the Bible compels me to have it. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says the cup that we drink, is it not a koinonia? That's the Greek. Is it not a fellowship with the blood? The, the, the loaf that we eat, is it not a koinonia with the body? It sounds to me like there's something more than symbol there. And yet, if you say, Kevin, could you be wrong? Darn toot and I could be wrong. It's not a deal breaker for me. Not a deal breaker. You might be a legalist if you don't recognize an area that the Bible recognizes as disputable matters. You might be a legalist, and this is an overlap of what I just said. You might be a legalist if you don't allow for the possibility that your perception of Scripture, especially as it pertains to non-essential matters, can be wrong. You might be a legalist if you embrace recipe theology. In other words, you can usually reduce achieving purity, for example, to a matter of three or four easy steps. Does your teaching rely on Jesus for its success or human willpower and the recipe? Does your teaching direct you back to the cross of Christ? Finally, you might be a legalist if, in spite of Paul's words not to judge non-believers from 1 Corinthians 5.12, you look condescendingly on their actions. Lois regularly scolds agnostic neighbors who are living together for their immoral lifestyle. I don't share these things with you to shame you. I share them with you to help you to experience greater freedom. If you are experiencing counterfeit consecration, if you are a legalist, your relationship with God is 
in danger. You who seek to justify yourselves by works of the law have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace. Ask God to deliver you. Ask people to pray for you as if you had cancer. Take it from a recovering Pharisee. This is a nasty, nasty battle. And you won't be able to win it by yourself. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit that's transmitted through other believers to us. Would you agree with that? True consecration. If that's what counterfeit consecration looks like, what's true consecration look like? In short, it's a devotion that is ignited and sustained in the heart. Paul talks about it in the book of Philippians. Why don't you uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Paul uses a term that I find very interesting. In Philippians chapter 3. Okay. All right. Let's let's begin with verse 10. I want to know Christ, says Paul. Now when Paul wrote this, did he know Christ? Sure. If you're a Christian, you know Christ. You know Christ experientially. But he's saying I want to know Christ better. That's the driving passion of my life. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Would, now I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Would someone read verse 12 in a version other than the one that I have. Verse 12, chapter 3. Out loud, please. Go for it. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Yes. Christ Jesus has done what? He's laid hold of you. Now, in the original language, this is the same word for arrested, seized, taken into custody. There's something supernatural about the nature of salvation. God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. He doesn't do it against our will. He doesn't coerce us. He, he knows the heart that cries out to him. It says he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It says in, in uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 that he, he reveals himself to those who pursue him. But when you come to know Jesus, he lays hold of you. He seizes you. He takes you into custody. He says, you're mine. And you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'll say yes. Yes. Now, here's something that's really important. We need to keep saying yes 
And in my opinion, we need to keep asking Jesus to lay hold of us. Not that he won't if you don't ask him. You know what I find coming out of my mouth these days? Actually, it's been months on end, almost four or five times a day. And I think if some of my friends were eavesdropping on my prayers, they'd say, are you okay? But what I find myself praying many times a day, it just comes out at different times. I find myself saying, Jesus, save me. Save me. Now I can imagine some of my, my friends of many years saying, Kevin, I, don't you know you're saved? Yep. I was saved in March of 1972, 39 years ago. And I am being saved, and I will be saved. Salvation is a daily walk. It's a daily encounter I was saved by the blood. I am being saved by the blood. I will be saved by the blood. I was empowered by the Spirit. I am being empowered by the Spirit. I will continue to be empowered by the Spirit. That's my prayer. I don't read my Bible to cross T's and dot I's. I read my Bible for encounter. I read my Bible whether I feel God's present or whether I don't. And I got to tell you, most days... It's a matter of discipline. And yet somewhere deep inside, there's spiritual oxygen. There's a pilot light. There's an awareness. There's an awareness if I wake up in the middle of the night. And some days are really fun. And some days are really hard but it doesn't matter. And if you and I will allow God to take us to new places in our walk with him, he will make us people who truly believe inside, not just with a profession of our mouths, but truly believe nothing has to change out there for me to have life and peace in here. Nothing has to change. We, we all have preferred circumstances. And there are some circumstances that I think are preferred from the mind of the Father. I think there are some circumstances the Father wants to change. But the truth is, if you, if you do not know in your spirit that nothing has to change out there for you to have peace and victory and joy in here, you will always live under the tyranny of circumstances. You will always be waiting for something to change. You know, I've preached some sermons and I've heard some good sermons about, you know, just just wait. Just keep waiting. Abraham had to wait 25 years. Joseph was anointed at 17. He became the prince of Egypt at 30. David was anointed as a teenager. He became a leader over the people of Israel when he was 30. So just keep keep waiting. Let me ask you this. What if you wait all your life? And that thing you hope for doesn't happen. Will God be enough? Is God enough? Some of us have a hope that God will use us. And you know what? I think God loves to use us. But my life isn't about God using me. He's my father. I just want to walk with him. 
One of the things that Kempis says that I hope we all get into our spirits, and I, I'm not saying I have it in mind. It's just simply a prayer. He says, love to be unknown and esteemed as not. Some of you might be believing you don't matter unless you're known. You don't matter unless your name is on a book that's widely circulated. You don't matter unless you're in demand as a worship leader or a teacher. Or you, you don't matter unless you achieve some success professionally. Let me tell you something. God screams you matter by showing us the blood of his son. What greater price could he pay? And so here's the thing I believe God wants all of us to get is have dreams. Have dreams. Have visions. Have ambitions. You know, there's a difference between an unholy ambition and a holy ambition. There are holy ambitions. But also understand that none of that has to materialize. Your personal fulfillment, your sense of worth doesn't depend on anything changing on the outside. So I want to just simply ask you, do you want God to give you a heart you can't give yourself? Because he will. He will. I, uh, I ask God to give me a new heart for someone in my life that I've had a long-term relationship with, and frankly, I stopped caring about them. I will tell you quite honestly that in spite of the fact that I was very intentional about my spiritual growth, I was so hurt by this relationship, and resentment had built up, built up to such a degree that I said, Lord, I really don't care anymore. And I don't want to try anymore. And I heard the Lord saying, are you at least willing to make, to allow me to, to make you willing? I said, I don't know. But that sounds right. Sounds good. Um, so if you want me to be willing, help me to be willing. And, you know, that's a prayer right out of Psalm 51. Lord, sustain me with a willing spirit. So, okay, yeah. Do what you got to do, just so I'm willing. So the next thing I know, I'm praying that I'll, I'll get a new heart for this person. I said, Lord, you got to give me a new heart. The very day that I prayed that, I had a dream that night. I was in a room about this size, actually, and there were all these medical professionals about me, and they looked alarmed, and they said, we've got the heart. We've got the heart. We're going to do the transplant right now. And they started tearing my clothes off. I said, look, 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 you know, I've got people to call. You know, can I make a phone call? Nope, there's no time. We've got the heart. They threw me on the table, and they started opening my chest cavity, and I woke up. I woke up with a new heart. I woke up with a new heart. Now, let me tell you something. I'm giving God the glory for that. I didn't do that for me. I, number one, I didn't manufacture that dream. Number, number two, God gave me a new heart. I am fully engaged with this person now. Fully engaged. The Lord has repaired the relationship and is, is not only restoring the relationship, but upgrading the relationship. This is the Christian life. It is not about trying harder. It's about receiving more. And, and having said that, having said that, there's nothing wrong with effort. 
You know, I put effort into my relationship with my wife. I do. And she puts effort into her relationship with me. I, I've read my Bible daily for almost four decades. I don't say that to you to, to brag. I say that to you because I need to read my Bible. I need the Word of God. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by how much of the Word of God? Every word. Every word that proceeds out of the, the Word of God, the mouth of God. I need time alone with God. Guys, this isn't something I do to, you know, be able to tell people when I preach, you know, that I've been reading the Bible for 39 years every day. That's not the goal. I'm here to testify. We, we need the Word of God. We, we will not experience consecration and new life without the Word of God. But let's remember, a Pharisee reads the Bible too. We won't be able to experience consecration without time alone with God in prayer. But a Pharisee prays too. A Pharisee serves. A Pharisee tithes. A Pharisee is active in a local church. So when you do those things, do those things. Give generously. Be active in a local church. Be, this looks to me like a local church. Serve. Connect with God. Connect with others. But don't, don't put your trust in any of those things. Put your trust in God. And ask God to meet you as you read his word, as you pray, as you share with others your vulnerabilities. Does that make sense? Well, let's pray. If you would like God to give you a heart you can't give you, I, I, I just simply invite you to say, do it for me, Lord. Do it for me. Make me what I can't make me. Um, I want to just ask you if you're willing tonight to renounce counterfeit consecration. Are you willing to do that? Just tell the Lord, I renounce that. I renounce all religious spirits. I renounce Phariseeism and legalism. I renounce self-righteousness. I renounce arrogance and unholy judgments and all that stands in opposition to God. Father, I ask you to cleanse me now. Deliver me. And make me the man I can't make me or the woman I can't make me. Fill me again with the Spirit. Give me a renewed discipline to read the Scriptures. To connect with you in prayer. Con to confess my sins to others. Lay hold of me. Arrest me. Take me into custody. Jesus, save me. I need saving today. In this hour. Father, I thank you for all the people of Communitas, my brothers and sisters. I thank you that there's no generation gap in the things of God. We serve the same God. We have the same ambition to please him. Lord, would you make Communitas collectively what Communitas can't make itself? Give Communitas a whole new upgrade collectively so that the people who are here, Lord, are saying yes in a whole new way. Lord, have your way. Lord, release provision, provision, financial provision to people who are here. Hope, 
Lord, there are people here tonight who need your hope. You know this, Lord. Release all that you have for your people tonight. Peace, strength, forgiveness. Lift the unholy shame off of people tonight. Lord, give a a restored sense of confidence. We give you the thanks and we give you the praise. And if you agree with this, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Bless you. It's good. It's good to just um, just see it lived out, see it in the man and not just in, in the words. So we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit just to come and do exactly as Kevin said, just to help us. And um, just go into a mode of receiving. It says in the Bible, we see Judah and the little children running around here. And when they find their mother or their father or their grandfather or grandmother, it's easy for them to just go like this. You know, just pull one of those and their father and mother know exactly what they need. So let's just do that right now. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit. If this is something where you want to see the Lord move in your life and you want to encounter Him in a way that's real and genuine, let's just open up our hands like a little children tonight and just say, come, Daddy. Pick me up. Just help me in this area. Help me as a child tonight. Just let the Holy Spirit meditate our hearts and just marinate us in the beauty of His love. And then we'll just transition out of this, but let's just ask Him to come in your own language now.
just reminded of when Andy spoke on prairie, focused on an exodus when the Lord reveals his glory to Moses. And the first thing that the Lord says to him in this moment was, I am the Lord God, I'm the Lord, Lord your God, and I am merciful. It's the first characteristic the Lord gives us about himself in that moment. And then when Jesus comes to earth, he gives three ideas to his people about what we need to learn from the Lord. The first one is in Matthew 9. It says, go and learn from me for I am merciful and I do not desire sacrifice, I desire your heart. So a lot of times our sacrifice can turn into that legalistic approach where it's like I'm gonna sacrifice X, Y, Z, one, two, three, you know, fill in the dot. But Jesus says, I desire mercy. So God, I just ask that you would give us a wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of your desire for mercy, God, and that you are merciful. You are a merciful God, and you desire to give us mercy, and you desire that we receive your mercy, Jesus. So we just ask you continually for this experience, Jesus. It also says in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 4, that we will remember and rejoice in you, and we will remember your love more than wine, God. We will remember your love more than wine. And we just declare that today, God. We will remember your love more than the finer pleasures of this life. Even more than the gifts of the Spirit, God, we will remember your love. More than the gifts of healing, more than the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of teaching and preaching, we will remember your love, Jesus. So help us fix our eyes on the burning fire of your eyes, Jesus. And the jealous flame of your heart. You are a jealous God and your name is Jealous Jealous. So we want to know you more. We want to be in communion and in covenant with you more, Jesus. We want to be in relationship with you that is not dependent on our circumstances, God. So from here, we just want to break up into some small groups. Just three or four per, per group. You know, we want to make the attempt to go, um, you know, guy and girl gr groups intermixed. Sometimes we do guys with guys, girls with girls, but we're, in these type of moments, it's good to kind of intermix and receive from both, uh, from both genders. There's different abilities for other to minister to one another so we want to go for that and just spend some time just praying for one another seeing if there's any uh, specific areas where the Lord is highlighting in your heart that he just wants to bring to attention and um, just draw you out of that legalistic counterfeit consecration and into pure consecration and relationship with him and if you're a newbie and when you're finished Paul will meet up with you and upstairs pray with you some more maybe answer any questions you may have about communitas kind of what we're all about if there are some more uncertainties you may have or just clarifications and then uh, if you also want prayer from the leadership team or the prayer team up here we'll be up here there'll be some people that you clearly identify and just get some more one-on-one -on -one prayer if, if that's uh, what you're looking for and so, um, Jesus, we just, again, we just thank you for all that you're doing in this place, in our, in our hearts, and we ask you for more. Just continue to fill us, continue to save us.
we just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, spin around, create groups. You know, like you're in a classroom in college and you're doing a group project or something sweet. Amen.